0: Okay. Um, uh, how do you guys feel about me sharing screen? the screen? The the upside is we all get a, a good text before us. I won't be able to see you all. Now you know how I like to teach. i um, uh, interrupt me at all times. I think I think the dialogue is uh, the dialogic is really helpful for us. So um, if I can't see you, um, let's see. I'll get it up there and we'll see what I can who I can see. Okay. I see Stuart Christie and Kevin. Uh, anybody else jump in anytime, please. Um, so what we're going to do, I'm going to build on uh, part one. We talked about um, Israel, our, our, our rootage uh, as, as those who belong to Jesus and the rootage of Israel, Abraham, sons and daughters of Israel and Abraham. Uh, I'm going to build on that today, talking about the realities of the gospel and setting us up for talking about the gospel as it engages with um, CRT, critical race theory. We'll do that next week. So really think about what I'm going to say today as a, as, as a one piece with next week, okay? So let, let's start. Uh, I've, I've got this named, as you see, neither Jew nor Greek. That's from uh, Galatians 3. Neither Jew nor Greek, um, the church, race, and ethnicity, or by one blood. By one blood we have been made in God's image and by one blood God remade us now you see the two biblical texts down below and I want to draw your attention to something right off the bat you see uh, Acts rather 17 26 and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of on all the face of the earth that's the ESV the ESV is uh, the I think the best English translation But listen to the Koine Greek reading. It's a bit different here. And he has made of one blood, hymatos, of one blood, all nations, ethnos, of men to dwell on the face of the earth. The singularity there is the blood. The diversity uh, in terms of lineage, culture, heritage, hue and hair, as they say, all of the language, all of those things is in the ethnos. The ethnos finds its singularity and its grounding in the hymatos, the blood. Um, The the Greek rendering there is so much clearer, so much clearer. And it gives us better context for what what we see here in Revelation 5. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood. Same word in the dative, not the genitive this time, hymatis. By your blood, you ransomed the people from God, from every tribe, language, people, ethnos. The singularity, again, is the blood. By the way, is it um, the cup that we share? Is it not our participation in the hymatos, the blood of Jesus Christ, all of us from different hue and hair and language and cultural lineage and so on and so forth? So it's by one blood God made us, by one blood he remade us. Um, that being the, this is the gospel. Right? This is the gospel. And so, in light of the gospel, the question I want to get at right away, especially as we as we want to engage in the world and engage in uh, CRT and uh, the complexities of the world, how then are we to speak? In light of the gospel, how then are we to speak? And my my conviction here is rooted in a couple of things. I, I teach a lot. I teach almost every day. And I know, and I, and I can see it over the, the course of the last 10, 12 years, um, there, is a, there is a creeping fear going on, at least you know from, from my vantage point. I can't speak you know, universally, but there, there's a creeping fear that I see of Christians not knowing how to or lacking confidence to speak and engage in the world and engage in profoundly and deeply gospel ways. So in light of the gospel, how do we then speak? I want to draw your attention to a couple of things here. The church has long confessed as part of the great wisdom of the church that the rule of prayer is the rule of faith, right? How we pray shapes, how we believe it's every bit is true. And we need to grasp it with, with that same clarity that there is a, a a rule of speech that governs a rule of thought, how we speak shapes, how we think, right? There's a reciprocity of mutuality that goes on between thinking and speaking. And my concern is is that at this at this very moment, I think the world knows that better than the church. Um, in the sense that, <clears throat> ah, sorry about that. <clears throat> in the sense that, what you're seeing right now, one of the one of the cultural phenomenons you're seeing is a, a top-down revision and restructuring of language. You're, you're seeing that all over the place. People that uh, journalists um, can track that. They, in fact, track that uh, language uses of words in the New York Times over the last decade we're seeing just an explosion of, of, of new language or words that now have different meaning. And I was just reading one commentator, he said, if you hadn't read the New York Times in 10 years and you picked it up today, you'd have a really hard time interpreting what was going on. Our language is changing. And what you're seeing is ideational sociopolitical influencers of our age are undertaking this. And then we, we see it in public square, um, uh, uh, a desire to govern and oversee language, as I say in the notes. Where do I say it? Um, With all the religious zeal that we might expect from the most scrupulous and exacting catechist, because catechesis is exactly what's going on there. It's a cultural catechesis. Um, In Luther's preface to his 1529 smaller catechism, he says, the devil is the master of a thousand arts, and he's a tireless, above all, he's a tireless catechist. He's always being catechized. So his, his issue was, you know, moms and dads, a smaller catechism was written to them. If you're not catechizing your kid, someone else is. Uh, and it, and it's, it's, it's the culture, it's the world, it's the, it's the devil, ultimately. It's the spirit of the age, let's say that. And so my, my concern here is that we're, we have our eyes wide open to that, right? There's catechesis going on. Uh, and we need to be really, really careful about words. Words are so important. We want to take care that Christian language retains Christian content, Christian language and Christian content go together so that the church's witness isn't reduced to parroting the world with that, you know, thin, cliched uh, Christian verbiage. Now here, you know, we often say, right, none of us likes Christianese. You should be really clear, Christianese isn't to to speak the language of Zion. (laughs) Christianese is to speak the language of Zion when the content is missing, devoid of the content of Zion. And so what happens is um, the church ends up speaking in a weird dialect, but saying pretty much what the world does. We want to be so, so, so careful of that. And Paul warns us of this, right? If we're to grow up into the full stature of the Lord Jesus Christ and in unity with one another, Ephesians 4, um, we cannot be tossed and spun about by the the doctrines of the world, right? And the, the orthodoxy of the world. And something we want to see that's really important here is how that, how that often works is new content with old familiar words, old familiar words infused with new content. Let me read for you a quote that I just, I just love it. Uh, Alexander Schmemann, he speaks to this. And you have it right here. Let me, let me, sorry, pull this up for you. It's going to straddle these two pages. There we go. The discernment of spirits right? That ministry of the Spirit that is discernment for us. The discernment of the spirits is above all a differentiation of words. For not only did the Word with the world and all creation fall, but the fall of the world began began precisely with the perversion of the Word, and we are people of the Word. Through the Word entered that lie whose father is the devil. The poison of this lie consists of the fact that the Word itself remained the same. So that when we speak of God, unity, faith, we could add there sex, marriage, diversity, race, any of those. He goes on faith, piety, love. He is, we are convinced that we know what we're speaking of. Whereas the fall of the word lies precisely and that it outwardly became other because a lie about it became a lie about its own proper meaning and content. The devil did not create new evil words. There aren't any of those. Just as he did not and could not create another world. Just as he did not and could not create anything. The whole falsehood and the whole power of this falsehood lies in the fact that he made the same words into words about something else. And we are, we are in the the preservation of the word and where it is perverted, the reclamation of the word, right? That's what we do. That's what we do. That's one of the, one of the big things that the church does in her mission to the world. He, the devil, usurped them and converted them into an instrument of evil that consequently he and his servants in this world always speak in a language literally stolen from God. Says one, of, one, of the, one of the ministries that we're going to do and one of the catechizing ministries that we're going to do is um maintain keep preserve love the word right um contend and hold fast for that faith once delivered to the saints cherish it and love it and so we got to do that um as we we engage in this and all in, in every conversation but but here i think it's so so important the second thing deeply closely related to the first the language of the church is the language of the kingdom and the language of the kingdom is the language of scripture holy scripture Um, We are people, that's part of our great Reformation heritage, heritage that we're sola scriptura people. In other words, we believe and confess that the word of God is sufficient for us for faith and life. We're not solo scriptura people. There's a big difference, right? We want to engage the world. We want to engage creaturely wisdom. Um, We want to do that. That's part of our mission to the world. But as we do that, we're sola scriptura people. Um, we're rooted source normed by the word of God. And I, you know, again, from my perspective, I'll bet you, you guys share it too. And you see this all the time. I think that there's a creeping concern um, that the word of God doesn't speak to the big things of the day, That somehow these are new. And we live in, we live in a world unknown um, to uh, our predecessors and where scripture um, can't do for us what we need it to do. to whatever extent that's the case, we'll be, we'll be grasping and searching all over for other things. Or we might say something like this. is closely related, but a little bit different. I sense, and I, and I include myself in this, um, that we become afraid of our own convictions. We don't want to be afraid of our own convictions here. We've got good news. And by the way, the gospel's always good news. The gospel that speaks to every manner of... Um, broken sexuality, every manner of uh, what we would call racial tension. This is good news for all of us, liberating news to set us free. But what it's going to take, I think, right off is us to be real clear eyed about um, how we handle scripture and what our call is into the the world. It's a, it's a, it's a light burden, as our Lord says "His burdens light. Um, But it's not without weight. We feel that. And so listen, listen to this. I want to have this before you as we enter this conversation, Robert Jensen. And I'll quote him, when the Bible lacks force in the church, it's regularly, he says, from the time of the apostles to post-Christendom, because we presume that the quote-unquote real world is some other world than the one that opens up to us in the Bible. And that what we have to do is figure out how to make the Bible effective in this putatively real world. If I had a dime for every time I heard someone say that in, in my teaching ministry, right, when you get out in the real world, you know, the world that goes on at Starbucks and so on and so forth. The world depicted for us in Holy Scripture is that real world. <laughs> it is just that. Let me finish this quote, and then I'll field that question. The thing is, it can't be done, is what Jensen says. and I want to be forthright and, 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 and make sure we get that right before us. It cannot be done. The Bible is, in fact, ineffective and irrelevant in this so-called real world, insofar as or because the Bible doesn't acknowledge that that world deserves the adjective. We're bringing the realities of God and Jesus Christ into the reality—the the reality of the kingdom, right—the the vision of the kingdom, the hope and faith and love and joy of the kingdom. Uh, and so, what, we're, what I want to put before us is, Paul says, um, these things are foolishness, right? First uh, Corinthians, awesome, awesome. Um, um, we have precious goods in jars of earth and clay. And um, to the world, often, or at least the leading edge of it, to the world is foolishness. I think we want to—we want to not only see that and acknowledge it and feel it in our bones, um, but know that this is a mark of apostolic authenticity. To whatever to whatever extent um, the gospel doesn't land upon the world in alienation from God as foolishness, we should we should be suspicious that we're proclaiming the gospel. And it's really important that it does because it, it's that provisional. It's, I might say it like this, and I'll get back to it later. It's that provisional baptismal pattern that is the, the pattern of the Christian life and Christian mission. Life comes out of death, right? Life comes out of death. Death precedes life. God's provisional no lends to and opens up to a yes that's so much grander, right? And that's the mission of the church. Um, so I want to have that before us. I want to make sure we have that. Let me field this question. Um, or or I, it's, it says, Upper Upper Midwest Diocese, whoever's, whoever's thumb was up, or hand was up, did you, did you have a question?
1: No, I just couldn't help but celebrate oh, that okay. quote and your comment on it. It's okay. just very hard not not to be able to respond to you verbally, because it's all such good stuff. No question, just, okay. just excited.
0: OK, so can we, can we say this? If we're going to be culturally relevant, and we've made an idol. I would, I would say, out of relevance. If we're going to be culture really relevant, by the way, relevant, relevance. What it means is to lighten the load. It doesn't mean to be to me to be in line with what's trending on on social media. It means to lighten, to disburden. That's what relevant means. If we're going to be culturally relevant, we have to be kingdom responsive, or maybe we could say prophet. Um, we have to have a prophetic untimeliness in the, according to the timing of the world. Right, a truly timing people according to the kairos timing of God. That's what we need to be. And I think I want to have that right before us when we talk about this topic. And then thirdly, how shall we then speak? Thirdly, the hermeneutic of scripture consistently moves from the one to the many. I would dare to say it always does. Um, For instance, from this one blood, all the nations by this one blood in Jesus Christ, all the peoples, all the languages, all the tribes and tongues are converted. By one, by one man, Adam, sin came into the world. By one man, Jesus Christ, redemption has come to the world. By one people, um, uh, Israel, right? For Israel. Where does Israel come from? Abraham. Right? Abraham. From Abraham and his seed comes this nation. From this nation so on and so forth there is one gospel paul says in galatians we dare not preach another there is one baptism there is one holy church by which all the peoples of the world and all the local churches participate there is one cup one blood one bread what scripture does here is it starts with particularity and it gets to universality universality highlights the particularity, but it never displaces it. It never displaces that. And we're going to see that. So scripture moves from unity and it gets to diversity. It really does. It gets to diversity. Um, Our modern world, one of the things it's marked by is it's marked by a love for diversity that cannot and will not. get to any unity that is kingdom unity. It can't get there that way. If you start, if you start with infinite diversity, you can never get to the gospel unity. If you start with unity, you will get there. You'll get to kingdom diversity. And so I want to, I want to have that before us right off the bat. I have the, I have Ephesians four for you right here and you'll you'll hear it. We sing it. uh, We sing it in the baptismal liturgy, right? There is one body, one spirit, one hope one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all and then listen to this who is over all through all in all you hear that one 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 all 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 that's the hermeneutic of scripture it's really important that we that we see that so the decisive point that i want to make here the church can must speak, act with integrity and vitality in the world, but she has to do it as church. Our call is to speak and act as holy church, to speak and act culturally, to speak and act politically, right? There's a politics of the kingdom, but it has to be as the church. It has to be as we hear the word of God and seek to do the word of God that we can do that. So what I want to do here in laying this groundwork and say we want to speak with cheerful confidence as church in the world from a scriptural an ecclesial and a creedal unity, because I, I, I'm well aware that these topics are really, really sticky widgets. Uh, they're, they're really volatile, uh, and, and I get it. And so what I want to do here in this conversation, the, the beauty that, uh, of the, our ability to have it is we can speak from a scriptural, ecclesial, creedal unity here. We have to be able to do it. Who centers the triune God of the gospel? Right. And we learn how to we learn how to take that mission out into the world. So those are my those are my big concerns in terms of how do, how do we proclaim and speak that good news that by one blood. Right. And or from one blood and then by one blood. I think we do it like this. Those are the big kind of governing principles there. If you guys aren't stopping me, I'm going. But if, but I'm, I'm utterly stoppable. Deacon John, could you yeah. scroll down on your screen? to the Yes, of- I can. Thank you. Kevin, it's. uh, I'm sorry, uh, Matt. It's still the strange new world of Zoom. Even though I use it now more more than I want to, but yes, there we go. Let's start here. We believe in one God, right? It's our credo, scriptural, ecclesial unity. We believe in one God. Do you do you see the hermeneutic there? We believe in one God, who's a plurality of persons: Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, If if you're thinking, what does this have to do with? Race and ethnicity, everything, Every, absolutely everything, this is where we want to start. Modernity, the times in which we live, the particular spirit of this age in which we live, is marked by a crisis in personhood. It's real clear; you see it everywhere. One of, not the only reason, but some of the big reason is we tend to contrast community and individuality. We tend to contrast those; we see them as oppositional. Maybe, if not mutually. Uh, exclusive, oppositional, and hard to remedy. And then we tend to ground individuality in the solitary self, right? The self turned in on the self, the self surrounded by the self. Um, this has everything to do with our problems r- around race and sexuality, everything to do with that. Um, right off the bat, let's say this. This is utterly unlike the God whose image we bear, utterly unlike it. And And what we want to do is I want to go through and talk here about who God is, what the gospel is, the church baptism, and what we're going to see is the triune God of the gospel in the gospel does to us who he is, and he does in us who he is. Um, The real ground of of personhood, individuality set in in community is our our learning, our, our, our bearing God's image and learning, right? Moving into learning how to bear that image well um what's needed another quote wonderful one i want to give you these um i hope they're i hope they're helpful to you i hope you use them and think on them. what's needed today says james torrance a better understanding of the person not just as an individual but as someone who finds his or her true being in communion you hear that we have our being in communion our being is rooted in communion that's one of the basic fundamental ways in which we bear god's image Communion with God and with others. We're going to really see this when we start to talk about our mediator. The counterpoint of Trinitarian doctrine, right? Anthropology has to find its counterpoint. It's an echo of Trinitarian realities. Anthropology is, a, is an echo of that. God is love and his true being is in communion, in the mutual indwelling of Father, Son, and Spirit. Perichoresis, right? Uh, in, uh, co-inherence in, in the Latin. Um, but it means the mutual interpenetration and indwelling of persons, right? Where there's real distinction in union. There's real distinction. There's real, rela- there's, there's real individuality, but that, relig- that individuality is rooted in union. This is the God who has created us male and female in his image to find our true humanity in that perichoretic union with him. So as God does who he is to us, what we're going to find is the realities of the gospel are parachretic realities, the realities of the church and communion and baptism. The paracoretic realities runs all the way through. This is the good news that we proclaim. Unity with him, unity with one another, and who renews us in the image of Jesus Christ. The great uh, Orthodox theologian, John Zazoulis, says it like this. The only way for true, here, think authentic, not, we're true and full persons we're made authentic persons in the realities of the gospel, right? We're we're moved from from distorted persons to authentic persons there. The only way for a true person to exist is for being in communion to coincide. The triune God offers in himself that only possibility for such an identification of being with communion. He is the revelation of true personhood. He's just that. And um, as we go, I want to lay this groundwork so that when we're thinking about the gospel, we're thinking about God doing who he is to us and in us. Keep that before you. God doing who he is in us and to us. We're talking about three persons who aren't interchangeable and not redundant, right? The son is in a redundancy of the father and the spirit is in a redundancy of the son. But they're not only mutually involved, they mutually indwell one another, right? This is all over scripture, but look at some of these and see what the theological payoff of this conversation is. Jesus Christ, the Father is in me, and I am in him. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Do you see the reciprocity there? It's not just that the Father is in Jesus. It's that he's also in the Father. where Jesus says, I will be in you, and you will be in me. The point of, and you will be in me, is what he does is open up in his very body a new and living way of access to his Father. <laughs> where I am, you will be. I am in you and you are in me. There's, there's mutual reciprocity there. As Jesus says in the upper room, right? I'm going away. He's going away to come in the power and presence of the spirit. And, and as the spirit indwells, us, Jesus says, you know, in that day, this is what you will know. You'll know by firsthand experiential knowledge. You'll know that I'm in the father and the father is in me. Um, the realities of the gospel are as the spirit who is that bond between father and son opens up his life to include us in his life. We're participating in Jesus Christ in his communion with the father in the covenant in, in of the spirit. Jesus says, you'll know that, right? You'll, you'll cry out as he says in, in Galatians, you'll cry out. Abba, father, as I put that, that precious name that I bear in my lips, I'll put it on your lips and I'll put it in your heart. And that'll be a mark of the spirit's ministry in you. Um, what this means among so many other things is that the whole fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of God. He's not a part. He's not a, he's not a perspective, a vague approximation, anything like that to possess him, to have him is to have father and spirit. John's John's epistles bear this out really, really well. Now, what this, what this is going to mean for this conversation, how it bears out so much in this this, co- this conversation about personhood as it deals with race, racism. The father, son, and spirit are indivisible yet distinct.
1: If you'll learn that, right? Um... um, um, um. distinction without division, right? That'll, 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 that, that phrase is going to be
0: so helpful theologically across a whole spectrum of uh, important things. Indivisible yet distinct. One God, one, three persons, right? We move from the one to the many. This is what we have, and it's really important. In God's life, God's life, we have real individuality, and it's situated, and it's exercised and it's discerned in real community. The only way that you can discern and exercise real individuality is in community. It's the only way you can do it. And so when you think about um, our Lord Jesus, he tirelessly says, right, um, I didn't come on my own accord. I don't speak in my own, on my own authority. I do nothing like that. Um, he hasn't read Freud. Um, He doesn't think he needs to flee from his father in order to self-actualize as an adult. He doesn't think that at all. He thinks that um, his identity is rooted in who he is with the father and the koinonia, fellowship of the spirit, so that we can identify him as the son in his communion with the father. Right, His personhood is discerned, and it's exercised as we see his ministries exercising it that way all over. The same exact thing is true of us. What we have here is an affirmation, a profound biblical affirmation of individuality. Individuality is a good, it's a gospel good, it's a biblical good, it's a theological good. But, there, but in that individuality, there's not one hint of individualism. That's a, that's a cultural ism, it's part of the spirit of the age. Individualism isn't a, a really robust, you know, different by degree affirmation of individuality. It's a, it's a contradiction and a denial of individuality. We uh, as, as soon as as soon as we flee from the community and try to ground a knowledge of ourselves in ourselves, that's when, that's when we have crisis of personhood. Individuality is rooted in community, exercised in community, discerned in community. What we have here is a real robust understanding of community without one shred of what we might call collectivism. Right, where, the, where personhood is displaced by any kind of identitarian tribal social structures. When we talk, maybe next week, we'll talk about this a little bit next week. Um, it's one of the things, um, it's one of, it's one of the, the growing tendencies that you see in our culture. Is we, we're, we're moving into identitarian understandings of persons. And one of the things it'll do is it will, um, it will remove place for us to be real agents as people right, as individual people. You wanna make sure, in God's triune life, we have an affirmation of individuality, a rejection of individualism, an affirmation of community, a rejection of collectivism. So much of what we're talking about in our culture revolves around personhood relative to what does it mean to be an authentic individual? What does community mean? It's rooted in God's life. Conversation has to, it has to be rooted there or we'll never get at anything really good. Keep going, keep going, Deacon, John.
1: John, can you say this to, um, I mean, I know you're gonna do more on, on this with CRT, which is extremely helpful, but I, I've never, your phrase, um, if you could just go, go back to your, your final paragraph there, um, maybe just say a little bit more about this, because I think this is really salient to what we're working through. Okay. Um, I think it's salient for the realities of racism, where um, a person, because of their race, is not given um that, that that agency like you you made a comment i think maybe what, what i want to ask you is could you play out some more uh, you made the comment around um if we are caught up in a kind of collectivism yeah personhood displaced by identitarian social structures yeah um we lose free agency mm-hmm. which um is could certainly be the reality for somebody in a minority status situation um, might also be the situation, but it could probably cut both ways. In other words, it could also be a way in which a majority voice might also completely abdicate their voice mm-hmm. in the kind of collectivism. Um, so could you just unfold a little bit more for us without getting off track too far? I don't want to throw off your, your incredible momentum here. Uh, identitarian social structures. Mm-hmm. And particularly how you're using identitarian, that's a new word for me. Um, help me understand a little bit more and how that affects free agency of the individual, properly understood, as opposed yeah. to pluralism. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so maybe we could say it like this, uh, Bishop. It, to the extent that we reduce people to demographics, you know, and, and we can, we can, we can do that, right? We can, we, we do, we. And, and by the way, I, I know how. You know, I know that there's payout for it in certain ways, but but it's way overblown in our culture. So if I could reduce you to, you know, Midwestern white male who is educated, so on and so forth. And here's your, here's your political, social structures. Then I know you, and then, then you represent a people group for me. And then I can, then not only do I want you to speak for them, right? We do this all the time, right? Can you um, so-and-so speak for the black experience or can you speak for, we don't want to do that, but we also don't want to say something like, um, then you have to in and of yourself bear the collective guilt or the collective agenda of things that have happened. It doesn't let us, um, maybe we can even say it like this, uh, Bishop, this is part of it. Um, When we talk about CRT, um, if we reduce human interactions to merely racial interactions where racism is real, (laughs) racism is real, it's present. Um, then we can never actually get out of that, 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 that original sin has to follow us and there's no redemption from it. and politics just bind us in a redemptionless way to be in this world. And so what it, what it tends to do also um, for some of us, <laughs> for some of us, uh, depending on, depending on, you know, what your, what your, what your ethno is, is it, it, um, it, it, it moves against what we might call your, um, your moral agency. You're so compromised by your own history that you can't ever speak. Does that make, is, that, is that helpful? That's some of the things we're seeing, and I think that's some of the things that I, that I see as I teach day in and day out, um, that this type of identitarian politics, uh, social structures, tells us. Um, that, we, can't, that, that we, we can only speak within a very, very, very limited sphere, right? And we certainly can't speak across identitarian tribal lines. We can't do that. And very if we, do, if we okay. do, we're doing violence to people. But, you know, Stuart, we can also say this, you know, our, our God, and we, we want to be so careful how we do that. But the church is invested with public truths, right? We speak public truth. And the reason we do that is because we don't worship a tribal deity, He's not—he's not a god of a, of certain people groups or certain corners of the cosmos. If he were, uh, we'd have no ground to move into the world in the pattern of the gospel, which is repent and believe the good news. Right? We would only be able to exercise that call in a in a, in a tribalistic sphere. We'd lose our we'd lose our ability and our grounding to act in the world. And so, to the extent that the church buys into these. I think the church is sapped of her strength. She gets really afraid in things like this to so help. We believe in one Lord. Again, one Lord, we, one Lord, one mediator. Do you see the singularity, the particularity? Who is the savior of all peoples, all peoples. We move from the one to the many. We don't multiply mediators. That's uh, more is very much less in this situation. We believe in one Lord. That's the basic credo confession of the early church. Jesus is Lord of whom (laughs) everyone everywhere. And this is the great news of our salvation. Um, Jesus Christ is son of God, son of Mary, that offspring of Abraham and Adam. He gathers up the generations of Abraham and Adam, and and then he is the savior to the whole world, right? And so what we see, I'm going to move through this a little bit quickly, but what we see here is particularity and universality just running side by side here so wonderfully. And you don't want to mute one and trumpet the other, right? You don't want to whisper one and scream the other one. You want to hold them in that holy paradoxical tension there. Jesus Christ is the one Lord. That's the scandal of particularity, whose good news and salvation is for all the world, all the world, that one blood. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one. You see it? No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows so on and so forth. Therefore, come all, right, come all, whosoever. It's rooted in a particularity. The particularity serves the universality, and the universality then highlights that particularity and never underscores it, never undermines it, keeps it there. There's salvation, and no one else Acts for There's no other name under heaven by which we might be saved. There's one mediator between God and man, the man. Let me stop there for just a minute. When we confess the incarnation, one of the things we're confessing is that um, now (laughs) the deity of God includes the humanity of Jesus Christ. His humanity is not a tack on to the second person. His humanity is not velcroed on to the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ there's a real hypostatic assumption of, of humanity, that one blood. And what he's done in, the, in his death and resurrection ascension is he's opened up a new and living way of access to his father. Um, and he has brought true and real diversity into the life of God, divine and human diversity. There's diversity in God's life in the incarnate son that one blood from which we all came, that one blood by which we're being redeemed is hypostatically bound in God's very life. It's not extractable. It's there. And it always will be there. That one Jewish man who'll always be that he is our one mediator, not only between God and man though, but between us, right? The only way that I have a ground of being and being in communion with Matt and Christy, Bishop, you, all of us is as we are rooted together in Jesus Christ. So not only does he mediate God to man and man to God, he mediates us one to another. Where there, where there's division in the world, he is the one in the ground who overcomes it. We can even go farther than that. Um, To the, insofar as sin is rupture and disruption, we have self alienation. Jesus Christ mediates us to us. Um, he knows us and he reveals us to us that way because he mediates us to us. So he is that one mediator and, and what he's done among other things in particular to this conversation is he's, he's brought uh, divine human diversity into God's triune life. This is just stunning. Now the gospel, we can talk about the gospel in lots and lots and lots of ways. I think this is the most profound one and the most predominant one in scripture. Union with Jesus Christ. That we oneness with Jesus Christ and therefore oneness with Jesus Christ who is one with his Father in the oneness of the Spirit. I will be in you. You will be in me. Just as I am in my Father, and my Father is in me. So Paul says Galatians uh, 2, I'm on that second to last bullet point here. We've been crucified and resurrected in Jesus Christ, so it's no longer we who live. That's a one of the first verses you probably learned in Sunday school. Uh, let's unpack it a little bit. But Christ lives in us. That is in no way saying you know Jesus Christ has come to evacuate you of yourself, right? He's come to zombify you, um, give you a give you a full lobotomy and, and 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 in an Apollinarian type of way, like you know. inhabit you and operate you something like that what he's actually done is he's removed all false and distorted selves so that we can discern ourself in the presence of his self alienation and disruption from god means that we're stuck with the self curved in upon the self trying to find a ground for the self that doesn't exist we can never come to a knowledge of self until we're found and until the that you know those constrained um, confines of ourself are opened up so that we discern ourself in the face of that other and come to know a knowledge of self. Our life is a life that's lived out of the Zoe life of God in the, in the residence of Jesus Christ, the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ in us, the ground of our buried being and the, and, the, and the, the one who gives unity to us. Um, and I just make this point. I'll make it quickly, unless you guys stop me, but union with Jesus Christ. Um, gosh, on the lips of Jesus, on the lips of Paul and John, way over 200. I want to say 264, but don't quote me on that in the New Testament. The only the the second language group of, of the New Testament that's, um, that's second to that is the basilea, the kingdom language, and it's about a quarter of that. In Christ's motif is massive. It's just massive. Um, and so what we see is, the intent of God is to do who he is to us in the gospel. As God is being in communion, he wishes to enact that in us. Now let's talk about the church. The unity and Catholicity of that one holy church is true. I know I, I, can, I can assume that here, right? It's not virtual. It's not religious sentimentality. We don't mean we all like the same hymns and so on and so forth. It means the ground of our being is in the, in the tri, triune community of God. And so what, what you see here, this is this other scriptural credo center we have. We believe in one church, one church that is Catholic, cataholus. It's according to the whole. It includes all the particularities of the global church, not only geographically, but historically. We believe in one church, right? And that church who has one baptism. We'll get to that in a minute. But we are... Truly and really and surely belonging to each other and united to each other, the ground of that is Jesus Christ, who is that with his father. This is the high priestly prayer. You know it. It's so, so magnificent. I do not ask for these only in our Lord's immediate context, but also for those who believe in me through the word. Um, Gregory House November 12th, right? For, for those, I'm asking for those. This is what our Lord is interceding for, that they may be one. That all the diversities and all the hue and hair, that they will be one. That's our, that's our Lord's overriding ministry, priestly ministry. But look at this. What's the ground of it? Just as you, the Father, are in me, And I in you, so that they may be, look at the pronoun, in us. To be in Jesus Christ is to be rooted in the very bosom of the Father, to be where he is. Not to have Jesus Christ and still be one step from the Father, right? Jesus Christ brings us into the very bosom of his Father. That they may also be in us, that they may be one, even as we are one. The church draws her very life and existence from the being and community of God. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly, right? Holy, completely grow into that so that the world may know. You see, this is not only gospel, but it's mission so that the world may know. This is the reality that we now live out and turn out to the world that you sent me and loved me, so that you love them even as you've loved me loved them in me, we might say. Again, this is the ground of what we're going to say about um how this impels upon the gospel, um, and especially in this cultural moment, that um this one blood with all of its diversities, with all of its diversities, we are one in Christ Jesus, right? That the church. Tom Torrance, I like the Torrences. You'll, you, and probably you'll see why. That the church is the body of Jesus Christ means that she, I'm going to edit him because he keeps calling the church an it. That she participates in him. We participate. The gospel is our invitation and the, the action of God to cause us to participate in his triune life. To participate in the divine nature as real humans. That she draws her life and her very nature from him sharing in all that he has done for her and sharing in his very life as the incarnate son of the father. And it is only through participating and sharing in Christ that the church is to be regarded as his body. That's it. There's no other way as his image and likeness among mankind, as the expression of his love and truth, as a reflection of his humanity humility and glory as the instrument of his gospel, as an earthen vessel, only on the ground of this participatio in Christi is the church a community of believers. Do you see that? Individuals whose individuality is situated, enacted, and discerned in community. A communion of love, a fellowship of reconciliation on the earth. The church is one holy and Catholic because... Father, Son, and Spirit are a communion of being. This is the gospel because because it is the the proclamation of what God has done in us and to us as that one triune being. The church reflects that. Now let's talk about baptism. Again, I'm I'm working with credo structures here. We can we whatever else we're going to say and however else these conversations are tense. This is this is this is where we're one. We believe in one baptism many, many, sealed forever in Christ Jesus.
1: No John, yep. it, John, let me just, um, a quick, very quick jump in. Um, what, okay, what you just laid out before us on uh, in Torrance's quote and your commentary on that, I just want to capture for the Gregory House class, is extremely important for us as a diocese. Um, because if you accept pre- the, Torrance's premise that we are the church insofar as we participate in the person of Jesus, um, which I think is an absolutely important premise, um, and indeed one that even affected our decision to leave the Episcopal Church in 1993. And there's a lot of ramifications to Torrance's uh, careful working out of his Christology-Ecclesiology connection. Um, But if we accept that premise, then it's also true insofar as that, that we are the church insofar as we live by the word of Jesus, Um, and by the revealed scriptures of Jesus. So as we are seeking to be holy church, amidst the question of multi-ethnic family, racial reconciliation, racial justice, all these things that are extremely important for us that we're stepping into and we'll be spending years learning about and enacting. It is paramount that we're doing so based on the word of Jesus and the person of Jesus. To not do so is to actually sell our birthrights and to remove ourselves and the very power that the world itself needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to underscore, by most of you were tracking, but want to really underscore what Deacon John just gave us here is, uh, and we'll do more discussion. As a matter of fact, I'm thinking, we need a whole Gregory House session after these three weeks just to talk about all this stuff. Yeah. Um, but, John, that, that was extremely important to our mission work of wanting to be multi-ethnic family, but to be multi-ethnic family as the church under obedience to the words of Jesus in the person of Jesus. So, so
0: we, we could say, you know, the, the church is one holy Catholic apostolic. Her, her, her unity, her oneness, her holiness, holiness, right? Her wholeness and her differentiation, her otherness. She's in the world and for the world on the premise that she's not of the world. She's not sourced by the world or subservient as, as soon as she is, she can't be in and for the world anymore. She's just assimilated to it. Um, it goes back to, you,
1: to your beginning yep. um, introduction around hermeneutic and the use of language.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so we could say this: the, the church's unity, catholicity, and holiness are governed by apostolicity. Only as she hears and does uh, the word of God can she be those things. As, so, as soon as that falls, then you then then the, the, you know it's the grand counter miracle, right? Wine back into water. That's not the one we want to perform. Uh, yeah, that's, that's huge. Another thing we could, we could say here is the Lord makes us one. It's not, uh, it's not our achievement. Our goal isn't to be one. His prayer is that um, what is true of us will be manifestly the case, right? We didn't create the unity, and we can't undo it. Does that make sense? We can speak a lie against it. We can contradict it. Um, we can, we can live shamefully, um, in those ways, but we can't undo it. Does that make sense? When, when, when Napoleon invaded, uh, Italy, one of the things he wanted to do was take out Monte Cassino, you know, of of such importance to the church over the years. And he wanted to destroy the church and, um, uh, several clergy went to Napoleon and they said, you know. We've been trying to destroy the church for 1,800 years. (laughs) We haven't been able to do it, Uh, and you won't either. And, you know, before too long, he was dead. Um, The unity of the church, that's that's why Paul can get at realism. And I just say, you know, it's scripture, but Paul does it a lot. Be who you are. Live into the realities of who you are rather than living against the grain of of who you are and, and obscuring who you are. Um, be of one mind. when we, we talk about the church being of being one, the assumption, if you read Philippians and First uh, Corinthians is there's all kinds of <laughs> wranglings, right? We're still sinful people. There's all kinds of 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 ways in which we rub one another the wrong way. Be of one mind insofar as possible. In any way you will, it'll be a movement toward the mediator of the mediator, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not, you're not achieving or accomplishing the unity. You're seeking to manifest it and live more fully into it. Just like we live into our baptism. So yeah, one baptism, this gospel sacrament, right? That tells us that signs and seals for us, our inclusion in Jesus Christ and in this specific Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected for us, right? The putting off of the flesh and a crucifixion, not only to a deformed self and an alienated self, but to the world. Paul says we we're crucified. Our old self is put off, but we're crucified to the world and the world is crucified to us. Not so we can be insulary and remote from the world, but so that we can actually have agency in the world. That's really important. We have to be crucified to the world so that we're not, among other things, constantly afraid of the world and constantly bowing the knee to the world and all the Caesars and lords of it. (sighs) Baptism, is that sign and seal of our immersion, right? The, The reality of our immersion into Jesus Christ, our inclusion, our incorporation, that word, right, our embodied incorporation into that most real of all bodies. The most real of all bodies is the one that belongs to the second person of the Trinity. And what he does is he grounds and allows us to discern our bodies and the body of the church. The Lord is for the body and the body is for the Lord. That goes for our human bodies and the body of the church. Right here. Right? We see the manifestation of what it means, real embodied existence as people of the gospel and real embodied existence as the church, precisely here that we see this, this um, scriptural insistence. For as many of you as were baptized into Jesus Christ have put on Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. For you are all one, in Jesus Christ, and there you see the hermeneutic again. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, things we were talking about last week, heirs of the promise. Now, notice the context of this is a baptismal context. We just saw Ephesians 4 a little while ago. There's one God, there's one Lord, there's one hope, there's one faith, there's one baptism. The context here is a baptismal identity. Your baptismal identity dislodges any other, other, any other identity that you might um, bring to that font, which is, in that sense, your tomb, right? The baptismal font that sits at res, once in a while, I look at it and think, that's our tomb it's bubbling up right in the middle of the congregation. That's where we're, that's where we're bid by our Lord Jesus to come and die, So that from that death, we live, right? We come out of those waters, purged and reconstituted in him. So one of the things that needs to happen in baptism, and we do it in the liturgy all the time, there's renunciations and affirmations. There's there's a reception and a repudiation, right? And an exclusion and an embrace. We deny things and we accept things. We put off things, we put on things. We pull asunder and we bring together. And you might even think of it like this. When you think about um, what happens in Genesis, the way God brings together and divides, right? He's bringing structure and order to the universe. One of the things that sin does is it pulls apart what God brings together. And it brings together things that God pulls apart. It's decreational and anti-creational in this way. The gospel does just the opposite in the redemption of the world. And baptism does too. Baptism tells us to put asunder those things that don't go together And to bring together again, it's, it's the sacrament of the church. It's the sacrament of the kingdom. It's the sacrament of the new creation. And so what we have here is we're called to count as rubbish. Even things we cherish by the way, right? Those Jew or Greek male or female, those are lovely. Can be lovely things. And they're things that we tend to really cherish. So it's not things that, you know, are of no sacrifice to put off for us. They're cherished things. Any way in which we have a self-styled or a socially constructed identity that is going to hinder our oneness in Jesus Christ, that very thing God points out in us and says, that is what you want to reject, repudiate, count as scubala, right? Rubbish so that you can have this Christologically constructed, or as we said last week, theologically constructed, but it's a Christologically constructed, right? We're reconstituted in Jesus Christ. The very ground of our identity and self is rooted in him. And therefore, to whatever extent, anything we're gonna talk about there um, is going to be a hindrance to that, it has to go away. It has to be actually subject to the cross, right? Or, or the watery grave, which is baptism, so that, so that a real self can come out. Now, what I usually do, and probably what, what all you guys who teach do, is, is you you go real quickly to explain away what's being said here. Because there there are lots of nuances and qualifications we need to make here. But this is a good, like a Lectio Divina text, right? You just sit in it. You hear just, just hear what Paul says for a little while. He says, there's no Jew or Greek. Hard stop. Full stop. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. Hard stop. Just hear it. I want you also to see something. Two things. For now. There's about a million things. but let's just go two now. This is exactly, those, these, are, these are some of the primary things that we struggle with in our culture. Scripture is an up-to-date. There's such a prescience here. These are, these are the things that are just constantly lapping at the church. They were then, they are now. They were then, they are now. And I also want you to see this, it's anachronistic to talk this way, but just, you know, to, to be a little provocative. Do you see the intersectionality here? Our culture, one of the reasons that our culture is getting really tough to deal with is because, um, because they're bringing together, there's so many things now brought together. That's not a bad thing, but, but it's making it difficult. There's an intersectionality here too. <laughs> All these things, um, the, the ethnic piece, the lineage piece, the class piece, slavery-free, and the, and the gender piece, the sex piece, they're, a, they're, a, they're, they're different aspects of one reality. All of them are rendered subject to Jesus Christ. Let me say this. I hope as it's on my mind. So I'm thinking about how, how prescient Scripture is. In the New Testament, Caesarea Philippi is spoken of one time, and it's in Matthew 16. That's where Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Right? There's no end to the spectrum. Who do people say that I am? Goodness, how much time you got. They say a lot of things. Who do you say that I am? That's where we get this apostolic precedent, right? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Why Caesarea Philippi? Is it arbitrary? It's an, it's an ancient pagan um, um, pilgrimage spot. So what you have is the, um, the Canaanite god of Gad there, the, temple, the shrine to Gad. Gad's the god of fortune, or you might say the god of self, the, the god of indulgence. There's the grotto of Pan, you know, the little lusty goat man, Pan, the god of panic. He's he's the god of sex. If you've ever been been to the Luxembourg Gardens in Paris, boy, you got to see it. All the the erotic statues and Pan is always leering and lurking everywhere. He's the god of sex. And uh, Caesar Augustus, the temple to to the Roman uh, state cult. Jesus says right in front of them, do you see it there? The self, the sex, self, sex, and state. Anthony Esselen says, that's the unholy trinity, so pervasive, so seductive. It was then, it is now. There's nothing new, nothing new under the sun in those ways. Different language around it, so on and so forth. Nothing new. Scripture has spoken to it. Scripture still speaks. We We have the resources here to talk about this and to do it really faithfully and well. Now, what does he mean? No Greek, no Jew. Does, he, does the gospel tell us, you know, we need to deny our, our own lineage, our own ethnos, some of which, some of you, I am, I'm one of these people, I'm, I'm quite proud of my heritage, the stories that I have, um, where my ancestors come from, I'm endlessly fascinated by it, and I love it. Um, maleness nor femaleness, we're not androgynous, we're not without lineage, um, our, our Lord hasn't erased our pasts or anything like that. But for them to be brought into the kingdom mission and the kingdom witness means that they can never be for us the ground of our identity. Because if if any of these things are the ground of our identity, they'll, they'll set us off in endless divisions against the other. And another thing I'd want to say here is these are categories of personhood that aren't legitimate categories of humanness. And, and modernity, just as modernity lacks a metanarrative, modernity lacks a, a, a notion or even an affirmation of humanity, what humanity is. And in, in that vacuum, what we do is we, we put um, categories of personhood where humanity goes. And so in so much as we do that, we get to these these places where we'd say, you know, um, it's, well, you know what we do. If maleness or femaleness is the ground of humanity, it's not too far before you're talking about the other, the other being subhuman or always, you know, subject to suspicion and so on and so forth. These are categories of personhood that can only be seen aright and set into the, 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 the context which allows them to be fruitful when they're rooted in the new humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we find all that we ail in our humanity in the fullness of his. And so obviously there's a way to say, um, and a gospel way to say, I'm so proud to be of Jewish lineage, right? I'm so proud to be, um, so on and so forth. You get it. What our Lord does and what, what the, what the baptismal font does here is it brings us to that watery grave. And it says, um, anything, anything that would substitute or get in the way for, um, A new humanity constituted not only yours as individual, but us corporately to be incorporated into Jesus Christ has to die here. And what comes out of the water can be an affirmation of your Jewishness or your Greekness, um, but it can never be in the place, in the place of um, the gospel realities of life in Jesus.
1: Let me read you a couple of things, by the way, stop me anytime.
0: These two quotes, all, don't look at the second one yet. Don't read ahead. Okay, let's do this one. This has to do with living our baptismal identity, right? You never, your baptism, as you know, it's not a, a red-letter day in your life. It's, it's much like your marriage is, right? You're, on your wedding day, you're never more married than on your wedding day. But the things you don't know, you've got to live into the reality of your wedding. You're never, you know, your you're, you're in immersion into the font, um, and you're being sealed in Christ Jesus forever. That's, a, that's an identity you live into, and we do it all the time, right? We dip our fingers in the font, and we put that holy sign over us. This is, this is the most true thing about us. If, I, if, if this isn't true, I don't even know where to begin to find myself. Now, what does it look like now as we live this out, live out our baptismal identity? Or we might say the mission of the church, which has a, 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 a baptismal sign and seal upon it. Just because, precisely because, the unity of the church is rooted and grounded in the incarnate, atoning work of Christ. It can no more be destroyed than the incarnation and atonement can be undone or go back upon. That's, that's good news. Cause we do a lot to try to and destroy this thing. This is God has done this. It's marvelous in his sight. Now we want to live according to the grain of the gospel. But for this reason, for the people of God to live in disunity, For the church to allow the divisions of the world, the world that we are crucified to, to allow the divisions of the world to penetrate back into her life, is to live in contradiction with our own existence and our very life and to call into question the reconciliation. It's reconciliation and to act a lie against the atonement and the Lord of it. I think this is where we're at. Um, to be in the world and to be responsive to the world and be, to be pastorally present, right? To, to grieve and lament the reality of racism and so on and so forth, all of this. We have to make sure that we maintain our identity as the church or else what we're always subject to. And by the way, to have a catechesis that matches the, 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 the fervor by which the world catechizes or else the divisions of the church will shoot or the world will shoot right back into the church. We want to be so, so careful of that. Now, let me get at this. Jean-Jacques Van Allman, French Christian from mid-century. I want, I, want, I want to think about this with you in terms of the church's existence, what we, who we are and what we do, and then who we are as we turn ourselves out into the world, right? You might even think like this. God's eternal triunity, as God turns out to the world, he's exactly who he is, right? He's not, he doesn't, God, God's not two-faced. As the church gathers for worship and as, you know, I sometimes, right, go forth into the world in peace, rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Then who is the church to be in the world? Don Ullman says this, and it's a, it's a, think about the, the mission of the church and uh, the, the great commissioning that our Lord gives us. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. I'm no tribal deity. Therefore, go. Teach all that I've commanded you. Teach all that I've commanded you. And baptize in the one name of Father, Son, and Spirit. Baptize all the ethnoi into that one name. Do it governed by all that I teach you, the manifest expression of my lordship. But the sign of baptism in the world, think about it. Our baptismal identity now being, being exercised and brought to the world. This is what Ben Allman says about that. Every time the church assembles to proclaim Jesus Christ, it proclaims the end of the world and the failure of the world. Now, we're not ill-natured. We're not curmudgeons. But think about this like um, magnanimously contrarian, <laughs> right? To be for the world, joyfully, wholeheartedly for the world means that we have to do this. And it's a, think about it like this. It's a, it's a, if you're not committed to pruning, you can't be committed to growing, right? Um, There is a, there is a provisional no here that gives way to a glorious yes. But if the provisional no isn't here, then the church is not doing her mission. The church proclaims by her very worship, the end of the world and the failure of the world. It contradicts the world's claim to provide men with a valid justification for their existence. It renounces the world. It's the living out of the baptismal pattern, our baptismal identity. What does our worship do? It affirms, since we are made up of the baptized, that it is only on the other side of death to this world that life can assume its meaning. Right? Look at the sign. Come. Right? There, is, there is life to be had, but it's life that comes forth out of death in the economy of God and, and his mission to the world. It's only on the other side of death to this world that life can assume its meaning. Christian worship is the strongest denial that can be hurled in the face of the world's claim to provide men with an effective, sufficient justification for their life. Now, think about that. I wish we had more time to talk about justification. That's an old, as you know, right? Great Reformational reality, great Christian reality that's really um, emphasized in the Reformation. Have you guys ever have you have you guys noticed how much energy we we spend of late trying to self justify? One of the things that's happening in our secular world is um, as the world secularizes, it doesn't become anti-religious or unreligious. It's just religious of another sort. And into that, into that vacuum um, comes all manner of, of, of a need to self-justify. And so you're seeing it all over the place in our culture. Um, you know the things we call it. Uh, we've got all kinds of names for it. But what it is is an overweening anxiety to declare yourself righteous before the world. One of the great liberalities and freedoms of the gospel is to be justified in Jesus Christ means you don't have to justify yourself to anybody. You don't have to justify yourself to anybody, freely justified. Then you can actually be missional in the world. If you have to be justified before the world all the time, you have to live in fear of it constantly. Von Allman says, the worship of the church hurls in the face of the world, right? Not not vindictively, nothing like that. hurls in the face of the world a denial of any effective and sufficient justification for our lives. There's no more emphatic protest against the pride and despair of the world than that implied in the church's worship and that sign. So look at this. This is what what the church says to the pride of the world. This is what the church says to the despair of the world. Right? Right? To the pride of, the, I don't know, if, can you guys see me? To the, to the, to the, to the pride of the world, to a, to, an, to a grounding of your own identity and your own self. Baptism says, you must come and die. You'd be lowered, right? Die into Jesus Christ. To the despair of the world, it's the resurrection. They're of a peace. There's no need to despair when Aslan's afoot. Right? All the snow's melting now. There's no need for that but they always are of a piece, right? They're always of a piece. And so uh, von Ullmann says, what we do as people who worship one God who is Trinity, one Lord who is Lord of all, one mediator of all peoples as one church that's Catholic with one baptism, or which the infinite number are immersed into the one. And by the way, to be immersed into Jesus Christ is to be immersed into the church, right? And to be immersed into the church is to be immersed into one another. Not in all the same ways, but don't miss that. I I see Will Easton, right? I actually, in profound ways, belong to Will Easton. And my sanctification um, isn't merely individual. Um, As I I grow up, up into the Lord Jesus Christ, it's of every benefit to Will. And to the extent that I don't, it harms Will because we belong to one another. To be immersed into the baptismal realities is to be immersed into the reality of God, the church, and the other. And so we can even say this, and uh, when we're talking about um, the other. We put on Jesus Christ. He, he is in us and we are in him. So here's the hermeneutic. To perceive a Jesus that's far off is to perceive a Jesus that isn't real. <laughs> The only Jesus that is, is the one who says, I refuse to be who I am apart from you. I'll go to hell and back. I'll go to Golgotha and Gethsemane and back. I will not be who I am apart from you. What that also means is for me to look in the mirror and to perceive myself as if Jesus is far off is to fundamentally misunderstand myself at the most basic level. For me to, I'm looking at Stuart and Will so I can see. And Joel. Hi, Joel. And if my hermeneutic of Stuart and will and Joel isn't first and foremost to perceive them in Jesus Christ, then I'm fundamentally misunderstanding who they are and what will happen at one degree or another, as I'll act to them um, in disaccord with who they are. This is all, this is all what baptism means, right? Uh, And this is all what this conversation um, about race and ethnicity has to be rooted in the, the confessional realities of the church. So that when we look at the other, whether it's one of different ethnoid than us, different lineage than us, um, what we ought to be seeing as um, one to whom we profoundly belong, right? to belong to to Jesus Christ, implicate of that is to belong to them, this one blood, and to perceive them in Jesus Christ as one with me, or else we got problems. The the divisions of the world are shooting back into the life of the church at that point. do you guys want me to keep going? Okay. When we talk about ethnicity...
1: Nick and John, why don't you um, plan on... So we've got... Uh, Pastor Michael's going to join us, I think, around a quarter till 10 till. Okay. Um, but that, that's immaterial. I mean, in terms of... We'll, we'll start with Pastor Michael at 11. So why don't you take us up... Um, let's take from 10... Um, 10.50 to 11 o'clock is a break. So we'll take a 10-minute break. Um, but you're, I mean, this is incredible. And, and I know you're going to start getting into some of the, the application. I yeah, okay. So let's have you keep going. Um, I think what we should do, you guys, is have Dick and John go to about a quarter till. We can do just like really pressing questions. But I'm realizing after this um, investment and then, and, and then what, what uh, Father Josh did with us last week and Dr. Boehm. We're going to need time to talk about this. I'm going to have to work on our Gregory House schedule some, John, because, because, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I need a good hour, hour and a half to review all of this and then get with us, get his brothers and sisters together and think together and apply together. I mean, we have the ramifications already of what John is sharing with us for our diocese and multi-ethnic family is mind-blowing. Um, I'm all the more passionate about it. But I'm also all the more clear. Wow, how we do this and why we do this is very gospel distinct. Doing this is gospel imperative. But he's yeah. already moving things in my head, and I'm guessing the same thing's happening for you guys. So, um, so don't worry if we don't have much time for question today. Let's leverage John while we have him, and I promise you, I'll work on some schedule stuff so we have time to really get our hearts and heads connected on 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 how we apply this and talk this through and. Maybe we can bring John in for just a, a longer Q&A session as part of that. We'll figure that out. John, you keep going. Um, why don't you just uh, take us up to a quarter till, 20, 20 more minutes, then we'll do a couple questions that are really pressing. Take a break at 10 till. Super. Uh, be back with Pastor Michael at 11.
0: Sounds great. That sounds great. Let me say this, then, that I've, <laughs> you guys, you, you know how teaching is, right? The, you're you're to say anything. You're always at one level saying everything, and there's so much. So when it's the gospel, there's just oh, infinity here. But I want to I want to I want to alert you to another text. Uh, it's 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 Colossians. In many ways, it's a parallel to this baptismal text that we've seen in Galatians three. Galatians three comes right. It is a baptismal text. It's you know it's 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 um, context is that just like Ephesians four is with the oneness and the allness. Those are baptismal texts. But in Colossians 3, you're, you're heading in your, in, your, in your English versions probably say something like putting on the new self. And Paul's talking about what does it look like to live a baptismal identity, to, to put off the old and to put on the new, to put off that which, of, which is of the flesh and of the world. Um, and he says something wonderful, and it, and it punctuates this again. Um, put to death, therefore, all that is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Um, Let's skip down. It's for sake of time. Skip down to verse 10. And having put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free. But Christ is all, and in all right so 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 to 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 live that out to keep doing that it's not a one-time thing obviously one of the things i loved about michael i I listened to michael wright over it was in july uh bishop when you were there um and he said something which uh, i just i just loved the the ease and the liberality of the church and he said you know when, when we're together and getting to know one another and fumbling over ourselves and so on and so forth Um, He said um, something about maybe we're all a little bit racist. I don't know if you guys remember that. And he said it with such a freeness that it just stuck with me. Um, And and as I'm talking to you, I feel the need to say, but I'm not. Right? We all feel that. But the issue is we all struggle with suspicion of the other we all do right and this is what our this is what our world tells us and this is some of what crt tells us i'll I'll be kind to crt too don't worry but this is some of the stuff it tells us you're all hopelessly racist and then it tells you never to never to say you are and if you are you'll get canceled the life of the church there's a freedom and a liberality here we are we are people who can say we struggle goodness gracious to one degree or another with almost every manner of sin Right? Some more than others, but almost every manner of sin. And we don't get canceled here. right? We submit ourselves to the Lord and, and, and the word of the Lord, and we don't get canceled here, and there's redemption here. You see Paul dealing with it, with it right there. Um, this context allows us, then, in the realities of the gospel, to live into that. Ethnicity, race. Here I am on the top of this page. What page is that? You guys see it. It's page six. Um, let's define terms a little bit. Or, or let's describe them more than define them. God is, this is part of the mission that we see throughout all of scripture. God is grafting Gentile branches into the tree of Israel, into the lineage of Israel, right? Bringing many sons and daughters and tribes and tongues, all of which have their own distinct familiar histories, their own mythologies, their own, you know, great identity marking stories and all of these things into the lineage of Abraham um, so that the promises of Abraham and the blessings given to Abraham we partake in as we partake in that true and ultimate son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what our Lord is doing and what his, what his vision is, we saw it right up at the top, that wonderful eschatological text in Revelation. He's building a multi-ethnic family for his glory. God loves diversity. <laughs> he does, right? There's diversity in God's life, he loves it. He loves kingdom diversity, but he is building right now a multi-ethnic family for his glory and part of us living in our diocese and, and um, speaking to this and rejoicing is it, and it, this is the mission of our Lord. It's, uh, it's magnificent, it's good. At the same time, we wanna say this. Um, one of the, the world is Twitter-pated right now with diversity. It's not a kingdom diversity, right? The world's Twitter-pated with love. Um, you, you guys see the signs, right? And again, it's, it's about the religiosity and the catechizing of, that the world does. Love is love. It actually isn't. Right? God is love. Uh, we want to be so careful there. But the world is Twitter-pated with, with a whole host of things. By the way, and one of the reasons they're so seductive is... Is because what our, what our world is doing in the secular transition that it's undertaking right now is it still has all kinds of kingdom language and kingdom memory and biblical language and biblical memory. But it's gutted of the, of the content of the kingdom and the, con, and the content of the language. And so um, the world's infatuation with social justice is a biblical reality, or a, a biblical mandate devoid of biblical realities and not subject to the Lord of the kingdom. That's one of the reasons it's so confusing even for the church. But diversity for its own sake, for its own terms, toward its own ends, for its own glory, is not a kingdom value. You just be really clear on that, right? It's not a nasty thing to say. Um, diversity, just like everything else, has to go to the baptismal font and uh, come forth in, in life and on mission. It has to do that. So here... We see it all through scripture. By the way, we see it even in the life of Israel, the life of Israel, we're not talking about some pure ethnic line. The life of Israel is engrafting, you know, Moabites into it, <laughs> uh, Joseph's wife, Moses's wife. Um, it's not that. It's a lineage. It's not a different blood. That's what we have to be careful of. From one blood, from one blood God made us. They're not coming from, they're not, we're not bringing into into the lineage of israel different bloods that's not the point what in this grand meta narrative it's engrafting the other into its life and mission right so this is brings its fulfillment happens in the lord jesus christ and it's ongoing reality it's happening right now but we see anticipations of it all over the place we can affirm biblically and we, in fact not only can we we must we must do that God is building a multi-ethnic family for his glory. And this is a marvelous thing. This is what the Lord's doing. Um, I give you a couple quotes here to to banter about a little bit. Um, They're from very different fellows, very different kinds of people. One down the line you'll see is John Perkins. If you know him, John Perkins is just a lovely, now almost 90-year-old black minister in Mississippi who's given his whole life to racial reconciliation. He's just lovely. And this was his what he thought at 86, his last book. It just came out a couple couple of years ago. But there's that, and I'll give you Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates is not a Christian man, um, but very provocative. Uh, I, I, want you to, I want you to hear him on this, and so we can parse out some of the differentiations here. In this book, Between the World and Me, he says this. Americans, we could, we, you know, it doesn't have to be us, but this is just the context. We could, we could say the world. Um, but in our own particular context. Americans believe in the reality of quote-unquote race as a defined immutable feature of the natural world. Racism, the need to ascribe bone deep features to people and then humiliate or exonerate, reduce or glorify, tear down or build up, depending, inevitably follows from this inalterable condition. But race, he says, is the child of racism, not the father. I think he's so profoundly right about that. Race and and infatuation with race and conversations constantly about race, whether they're undertaken by the way, you know, people with white sheets over their heads, right, clanners, or people that look very, very different in our culture, preoccupation with race is a symptom of racism. Man, that's good stuff to think about, you guys. How might we talk well about race? Humanity is one blood. That's why I wanted to give you the the Greek text uh, right up front in this. At its core, we're talking about one humanity, right? Who is redeemed, From one blood who is redeemed by one blood, we're not different species. Humanity is humanity. Scripture gives us a humanity. We're the human race. We're a race of humans. There's endless, endless variety of, you know, what we might call hue and hair, cultural backgrounds, um, cultural characteristics, so on and so forth. There's endless variety of those. That's those aren't different races. Those aren't different races. That's that's what Ta-Nehisi Coates is talking about. A preoccupation with race um, comes from and is symptomatic of racism. Racism is real, you might say. Racism is very real. But race is groundless. Does that make sense? Race is groundless. It's one of the ways we have, to be, we have to really learn as ministers of the gospel to tend our language well. You know, Stuart, you've done some of that with issues surrounding sexuality, right? Tend our language well, because there's catechesis going on here. I'll give you something else. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates says in his, book, in his book and how it works itself out. This takes a little context. I just put it here to spur my memory. He's reading, and he's reading Saul Bellows. Saul Bellows is a Canadian uh, literary critic, and Bellows is, is, is bellowing, in fact. Where is the Tolstoy of the Zulus, he says? Where is it? And, and, and Ta-Nehisi Coates is talking about his own um, experience of lamenting that and saying, yeah, where is it? Ralph Wiley, uh, Black author, answers Bellows, and he says, Tolstoy is the Tolstoy of the Zulus unless you find profit in fencing off universal properties of mankind into exclusive tribal ownership. He says, I get it. Racecraft has brought us to think otherwise. This is this is what I mean. When we're infatuated with, with race as an implicative as a as a working out of racism, we start doing a whole lot of that. What it, what it doesn't allow us to do is say, Thomas Sowell and Louis Armstrong are the Thomas Sowells and Louis Armstrongs of white people. Right? Does that make sense? They're Americans. They're, you know, so on and so forth. This is his point. Unless, unless we get away from, wean ourselves from that type of racecraft which um, cardens which, um, off into tribal identities and therefore tribal ownership. Um, on a ground, on a basis which is groundless, we're going to be in trouble. Does that make sense? I think the best way to talk about, uh, to talk about humanity is to talk in the language of scripture. Um, One humanity whose, whose um, image, who bears God's image, one humanity with endless variations of um, diversities, endless. Um, but we are not talking about, um, multiple races of people. As soon as you start talking about multiple races of people, you're going to ask which ones are better than the other ones that really needs to be subject to the gospel. Do you get, can you hear me clearly what I'm saying here? Racism is real. <laughs> the, the, the category of race Is groundless. It's a false vision of humanity. That's the thing we want to get at. Where you see racism groundlessly implicated, groundlessly perpetuated, you start to see things like redlining in Chicago. The church has to just just howl over that, right? It's it's so it's so wicked. It's so evil. We want to move against racism in that way, but we we don't want to perpetuate conversations about race because they're they're ill founded. John Perkins, a very, very, very different creature um, in terms of his uh, faith in the Lord Jesus and, and his mission in the world. In his book, One Blood, he says this, when I say the human race was not always color coded. And that is something that's, you know, quite, you know, new in the history of the world, several centuries old, but fairly new. I mean, he says. That race is not ele- is- that race is not a biblical way for us to relate to one another. I couldn't agree more. Race isn't isn't an authentic category of humanness. There's only one race and over time we've elevated things like skin color, hair texture, language, ethnicity to a level where they become the main criteria. And when they do, we use them to judge people groups and we, we get into exclusionary, tribal, identitarian ways of being and speaking. And then you're going to get endless fragmentation. And then we take those classifications, he says, and assign them values as we use to include or exclude, to normalize or stereotype, to celebrate or denigrate. That's exactly what has to go to the baptismal file. That's exactly what Paul is saying when he's inviting, bring this right here, right? Bring it
1: right here. Let me say this. Um,
0: I'll leave this with something. Well, I'll open up some conversation. Gerald McDermott. The new creation, right? The one who created us of one blood and is recreating us by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me say this. I'm sorry. I don't mean to jump. It's a bad teaching moment. But let me say this. Some, sometimes you'll hear people saying there's, there's only two races. Um, you know the human race and then the new race, and that's got a that's got a long, long line in the life of the church. Talking about a new race in Jesus, I think we should stay away from that. Um, the, the 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 language of Scripture, the, the original languages of Scripture, is blood. It's blood. I, I think it's so much better. I don't. I don't think we want to say the church is another race either. Uh, I don't think we want to want to get at that. We want to get at it that way. The new creation, wrote John, is made up of a people from every ethnos. That's the language of scripture. Our Lord is making a new nation. We are a holy nation of priests, right? We're we're, we're that ethnos, not a different race, a different ethnos, a different lineage, different stories to tell, right? From every nation, tribe, people, language. The nations in the plural, like the ta ethne in the New Testament, were often multiracial, and that's really important. Um, our country's multiracial, multi-racial um, the nations of old, the biblical nations, multiracial migrations of people all over the place. It's always been that way. That's not, there's nothing new. So the, our, our cultural plurality that we're, that we're experiencing in the U.S., it's nothing. there's nothing new there. But typically united by a common culture. McDermott says, the early church recognized that culture was rooted not in skin color, but in the religious cultists, right? Culture, the root of culture is cult, worship. We've we've been brought in. Well, let me do this. Revelation. And they sang a new song, this new culture. Worthy are you to take the scroll, right? And they worshiped. The, 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 the stuff of this new nation, its new culture is the worship of the Lord. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed a people for God with endless, almost infinite, but innumerable for sure. Um, particularities all brought in, right? All, all brought in, the many brought into the one so that it accentuates the one, the particularity. It doesn't displace it, it accentuates it, and it gives place for the many in the one. Apart from the one, there's no place for the many. They have to rip each other to shreds. I'm gonna stop there and you let's let's talk for a while let's talk for a few minutes.
2: Yeah, well, thank you so much for this uh, rich teaching, Deacon John. I was listening the whole time, but I actually drove out to Res, so I was listening on my way. Back <laughs> just got home, but um, uh, but I was was listening, um, and I'm glad that you brought up uh, cancel culture. So I've crafted my my question. I've tried to craft it to be as clear as possible. Yeah. Um, So since the basis of our unity is Christological, that we're in Christ, Mm -hmm. baptized into Christ, and then apostolic, Mm -hmm. um, that uh, we are directed um, and governed by the word. How do we respond to the biblical uh, anthropology um, that marked recent church history, especially with the rise of the slave trade? Um, even in our own tradition of Anglicanism, I'm thinking, um, in the 18th century where the Bishop of South Carolina actually changed, uh, the baptismal liturgy when they wanted to start baptizing slaves to say, okay, we're saving your soul, but your humanity is of a different kind that will Mm -hmm. always be inferior and lesser to us so that you have to stay enslaved. I mean, um, how do we relate, uh, to our tradition, um specifically the Catholic church tradition. Yeah. Um, and how do we keep unity with those in our past and our present who still mm-hmm. promote, even if in different forms and in different ways, anti-biblical anthropology, mm-hmm. um, in the sense where, you know, cancel culture might have us cancel them mm-hmm. for, for one reason that has no, uh, care or concern about biblical authority mm-hmm. or about Christ. Um, mm-hmm how do we as those who who do stand on the word of the apostles and the prophets um how do we maintain unity can we maintain unity
0: yeah let me okay so there's a couple of things there one will uh which you were which you were saying about the um the utterly aberrant heretical right anthropologies uh, of these of uh, these baptismal liturgies and so on and so forth i think when we look back at um uh the church we think about the church we see um areas in the areas of the church where things have happened that are so out of character for the church and we could we could talk about that we could talk about apartheid right chattel slavery um the inquisitions all of those things i think where you see those will you don't even try to defend them i think you lose credibility even to try um you can only repent of them, right? And the thing, if you can justify it, you don't need to repent of it, and you can't justify it, so don't even try. You repent of it. And so we have we have in our heritage, in our family tree, in our ecclesial family tree, we've got warts. Um, what some of modernity does, one of, my, one of my colleagues, oh, you know him well, he says, you know, you know, what moderns do sometimes is they, they go to an apple orchard and they pick an apple off the tree and they take a bite and they find it's pithy. And so they say, burn the orchard down. We don't want to do that. Um, we, want to, we want to grapple with um, our own um, wickedness in our, in our own heritage um, that's caused us to be deflected from mission and message. We've got to own it. I don't think there's any apologetic value in saying like, well, that's not us. That's, that's us. We're, we're really flawed, right? We're really, really flawed people. And so you, you lament it well and you repent of it uh, to the extent that it stays there. Not that you did it. Not that you did it. You're not, you're not, in, you know, you're not incriminated in so, in so far as that is the case. And you leave it there to the extent that um, we still see those things right? Like you were saying, these ongoing things. I think we have to, as the church, speak a word of God to it. Um, we, call, we call one another to the realities of the gospel. And we call one another to repentance. Where that repentance is slow, we have to say, we have, we have to live with you um, as, the, as the church. We have to live with you um, in the tension of our disagreement until we can come of one mind, until we can come under the aposto- apostolicity that governs the oneness and Catholicity and holiness of the church. To the extent you're doing what you're talking about, this is unholiness. <laughs> um, and it's ripping fissures in the unity and Catholicity of the church. It's out of step with the church, it's un-Catholic, and it's ripping at the present unity of the church. I think we have to acknowledge it and say there, there needs to be repentance there. There has to be that. Where the church differs is we are never, can, never cancel culture, right? um repent of this and the the hand of fellowship is extended right and the no here the no and by the way the strong no wants to give way to a yes as soon as it can as soon as it can in the truth it gives way to a yes a joyful yes we need to be rid of these things does
1: that help
2: yeah it does thank you deacon Clark.
1: Mm -hmm. deacon john let me um just throw this question out for us to be discussed later. So it's 10 till i want to give folks a 10 minute break and stretch before Pastor Michael comes. So I think this would be a question for the future. Um, if we accept what um, both Coates is arguing with incredible eloquence that, uh, that racism is the father and the child of racism is race, if we accept that premise and it would seem that, that Perkins from a different vantage point is arguing a similar mm-hmm. line as you are, um, I think the question I would have is what is that application for us ministering to America um, as Americans? What's, what's the application for us? Um, what does that mean for us as white majority culture who, um, if this premise is mm-hmm. true there, it's also still true that we've then we've been come up, we've been raised in a culture that is highly, highly valued race. Yep. And if one accepts the premise thereby racism, Um, We've grown up in a culture where race and racism has had incredible influence. Uh, We in white majority culture um, participate in that, often unwittingly. Part of the journey for many of us is, oh my goodness, I didn't know, I didn't realize, I didn't understand. We're listening to black voices, Latina voices, etc., and we're going, oh my goodness, I didn't hear this. Um, And there's a lot of good there, I think, that we all want to embrace. And yet, at the same time, what do we need to be aware of in that process? Um, so again, that's, that's a longer, I think, conversation for us to have. Deacon John. I'd love you to do some more thinking on it for us mm-hmm. and we can maybe touch on that, see your team may get us into some of that next week as well, because the premise is really compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, the coach premise is really compelling. And yet at the same time, it leaves me a bit <laughs> like, oh, okay. But then what? As a white, as a white majority culture guy, I've been in the process for years and even the last couple of years and even even in light of of the spring and and the, and the killings of, of black men and a black woman, yeah. for example, going, oh, my goodness, I, I thought I understood and I don't understand. Yeah. So how we how we twin this, how we yeah. how we accompany these two truths. Um, we need to know more. But we need to also really question race and racism as a biblical construct. Yeah. I think be really helpful for the discussion.
0: So let, let's, um, next week, you know, let's, let's be thinking a little bit and we'll, we'll take all we've done here and we'll bring it over. Let me just put a couple of things out there, uh, Bishop, it, in light of that. We talk a lot about um, systemic racism, right? Structural racism. I don't see any reason why, why we can't say fallen people do things fallen. Sinful people do things sinfully, right? Yes. Um, is, is this, this groundless construct of race deeply knit into our culture? I don't think there's any, any problem in us saying yes. Right? By the way, all we're saying is the world has fallen. We didn't know that. We're not, a, we, we knew that, we knew that. Um, what we do wanna do, or I think a thing we wanna avoid, let me say that, while we affirm that, what we're not saying, or I wouldn't wanna say, is that um, we need to torch the whole thing down, right? I don't think we're talking about fundamentally, um, we're not talking about canceling the church or canceling even our culture. We're not, I don't think we're talking about that. But we are talking about dealing with deep-seated, right, time-honored um, ways in which we've been blinded, in which we need, to, we need to subject to these things to some real theological, biblical wisdom, and then with patience, start to undo what has been done mm. uh, in the life and ministry of the church. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm, re- I myself am really sympathetic. I know that that word, even, you know, um, systemic racism. I don't think we should be afraid of it. Uh, structural racism. I think what we, what we do want to resist is saying, therefore torch it down because it's another, the, the church redeems. We don't say the world's fallen to so torch it down. That's mm. not who, that's not who we are. I don't, I don't think we want to own that at all. We want to say we need to be humble. <laughs> we need to be repentant. We need to undo some things that have been done. Um, and that's going, to take, that's going to take us, all of us individually, and then all of us as one. That's why I really wanted to start today with, with, with creedal confessions. Um, what does it look like for us to untie some things that have been bound together that ought not be? and then bring together, which has been pulled apart, which needs to be brought together. It's part of the kingdom mission.
1: Thank you, Deacon John. You guys, isn't it amazing to have theologians who serve the church? (laughs) I mean, oh, my word, how we need this type of reflection and theological teaching so that uh, we can all um, get clear about the Bible, so we can get clear about our mission um, for racial justice. And, and I'm just, wow. Thank you.